Welcome to the Fargo Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Fargo on FX. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're talking about Season 4, Episode 4, titled The Pretend War. Uh, Aaron, what do you think of this episode? Uh, it's another good episode. Um, they're doing some of the things I've been wondering to see, the, the, the wanting to see them do, like have Josto be kind of a credible threat. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought uh, Loy Cannon got to be kind of convincingly tough, but still... There's still maybe a little bit too much twinkle in, in, in Chris Rock's eye. But on the other hand, oh, you the think time, so? well, not with the Rabbi Mulligan, but like with the Thurman. But that was, I think, supposed to be a comic scene. Um, And and we have uh, some uh, some uh, some some paranormal. The paranormal has visited Fargo in season four like it sometimes does, like it's a little little fucked up fairy, mm-hmm. uh, which we'll get to talking about Um that kind of took me by surprise to have something because because like when Fargo is blessed with the supernatural, um, it usually it arrives late in the season, like th- this kind of stuff. And and I don't know yeah. whether it's just like, hey, you know, you're taking advantage of the Halloween release schedule or what. But um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I feel like at this point, it's it's entirely in the wheelhouse and there's a couple of different ways they could go with it. Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Um. I'm with you. I like this episode. I think actually, uh, you know, we've I've complained over the past couple of episodes a little bit lightly about um, how Jason Schwartzman and and uh, Chris Rock were maybe being a little too comedic for the roles. Uh, maybe not up to uh, specifically Chris Rock. Maybe not up to the dramatic uh, weight of the role. Uh, but this episode, sure. I was pleasantly surprised. I, I I feel like there were a couple of good scenes. You know, when he he talks to Rabbi when. Um, like you mentioned, he talks to the Smutney guy. I-, I think both of those were very effective in making him uh, more of a a serious man, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it did, you know, not in that way. But uh, yeah, I-, I don't know that this did a lot for my the the taste in my mouth that I had for Fargo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I- I'm curious to to hear what you dug up about the supernatural stuff because I know you looked at that and I've I've got something cooking about the American values and and immigrants and Italians and I I don't know exactly where that's going but uh and oranges Sounds like a tasty tasty stew. Oh yeah. The new new uh Irish Italian black stew. It's fusion. It's that a fusion for Fargo. sure. Yeah, it's a, it's it's an it's the hot new restaurant chain <laughs> taking over the country. Yeah. <laughs> Open up a, a chain of yeah <laughs> Fargos across the nation. Yeah, it's a Ita- it's Italian Jewish soul food. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And it's just called Fargo. <laughs> uh, so where do you want to start with this episode? Uh, I kind of got things divided into different categories of business. What I'm calling it: cannon business, fada business, police okay. business. And I feel like the the one to start with is the cannon business that we're seeing this episode. Can, can you uh, do that? Start without also getting into the fada business. Like, th- there's a lot of overlap there. I guess there is a lot of overlap, but I feel like I've got it the, uh, split up to where they kind of like hand off the one to the other. But we'll see how it goes. Um, I want to start with the 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 orange the orange truck. Yeah, rolling down the road. Um, you know, I, I thought this this opening scene that has all these different like pastiches of things happening. I, I love the way they're using the divided frames. I love how 
you know, s- stylish and visual. The storytelling is is enabled there because you just really get kind of like this uh, slice of life, this intensity of like you know, the doctor, doctor senator, like getting things set up, and and Lloyd Cannon kind of fretting about the operation, and you know, Satchel and Mulligan, you know, chilling out in their beds, blissfully unaware of what's all going on. Um, I thought that stuff was really cool. And it all kind of it all kind of comes back to the apple truck, right? Um, Calamita. So I looked up that I looked up this the, the meaning of this name in Italian, and like it means magnet, but also has secondary meanings of a calamity, disaster, misfortune, and scourge. Which you know, I don't, you can almost hear a calamita, calamity, right? Sure. Yeah. Uh, is there something to the fact that trouble seems to stick to this guy and find him like a magnet? Maybe. Um, it, it definitely, Would everything he's in, involved in ends up like, you know, upside down. Yeah. Uh, it could, it, it sort of, um, brushes up against the, the, this orange theory stuff. Uh, the you know eh, okay maybe we should spell this out a little bit for people like if you don't know let's oranges, talk let's talk orange theory yeah um oranges are a a symbol uh in the Godfather movies typically that means there there is doom or death around a particular event or character uh, when you see an orange like famously Don Vito dies with an orange in his hand uh. Uh, Michael Michael also dies um, with an orange in his hand at the end of Godfather Three. So like that there, and there are many many instances. It's not just the the two deaths. It's you know Sonny. Uh, I, I think when he dies, there's, there's a billboard with an orange juice ad on it uh, right before he oh, gets, shit. he's I didn't gunned even down. Know about that one, yeah, there's just a ton of instances, like fifty of them or something. <laughs> I know there's a lots of homages to that. Like there's an orange theory, you know, Ted got a bowl of oranges spilled over him in Breaking Bad when he got assaulted by, well, accidentally assaulted, I guess, by uh, <laughs> Huel and his associate Red. Yeah. Uh, this, this, it's this idea of there being the citrus fruit connected to like things going bad in gang movies mm-hmm. is, you know, it's like the orange. Anytime you see orange in a gangster movie and are gang related, it's, it's suspect. Orange is sus. Yeah. And, and there's a whole truckload uh, of them here. Whole truckload. And, uh, and not, not just that, but Loy Cannon later brings these oin- or- oranges, these oranges. <laughs> he brings these oranges. You see, he brings these oranges into his home and starts peeling them and providing them to his family. So mm-hmm. like to the extent that these oranges are <laughs> a menace uh, to gangsters, he's fucking mainlining that vitamin C right, right into his veins. So that, that could For be sure. some interesting foreshadowing. And I was doing a little bit of reading about, um, this theory because obviously i saw the origins i was like oh i gotta get into this um and i read an article by somebody who was uh, because a lot of people you know think of the godfather as a story of american violence um a story of like the the things that that people find when they immigrate to america uh but this article was was or this you know editorial i guess was talking about how perhaps there's also an element of what people bring with them um, when they get there and, um, you know, the oranges could be a representative of that because it's obviously, you know, a Mediterranean fruit, um, that, that comes from that area. So 
it, it's interesting, I think, when you look at it in terms of this the story that uh, what's his what's his name? I don't even know his name. Uh, the guy who talks to Doctor Senator in in Spuds. Oh, the the Fadas Consigliere. I, I haven't figured out his name yet either. Yeah. Um. He he tells a story about how he came to America and he heard this phrase "American values" and he he couldn't he didn't understand what it meant. He still doesn't really understand what it means. Um. Other than to say that people say they're one thing, and they're they actually are a different thing. Um. And it, it, that idea that like he would come here and bring with him some some you know ideals that aren't aren't really compatible with the american values right mm-hmm. um kind of is could be reflected in the oranges um they're they're bringing these things over that make them uh you know come into conflict with the irish and the jewish and the blacks like all all of these people um are bringing their own things that are kind of clashing uh Mm-hmm. And you know maybe maybe you could take that ingredient, uh, the oranges, the whatever ingredients everybody's bringing, and create a tasty stew and open a Fargo, uh, a chain of Fargos across the nation. Marmalade. But, th- but there's a lot of work involved in that, right? There's sure just like trying to get all that to match up takes a lot of effort, um, and it still feels like we're nowhere near getting that to work here. I like that. I like that because, you know, because, um, you know, a lot of people, sure, certainly Godfather is a mafia movie, but it is also explicitly an immigrant's tale. Yeah. Like, you know, especially if you ever see the saga edition, it all starts with Vito as a little boy alone coming over, getting separated, quarantined Ellis Island. It's it's like the quintessential uh, migrant story. Yeah. Um, and then if you take that and you look at the ghost story that they're telling here. Um, you know, the haunting of this house. They they specifically mentioned last episode how houses aren't haunted. You know, the the people that inhabit them are haunted. Um, the ghost is following the Smutneys, right? Their family. Um, and if you kind of look at that from the same angle, well, the the ghosts of these immigrants are following them across the ocean to America, um, mm. where you know the the things that made them who they are back in the old world are also affecting them here in the new world. And no matter where they go, no matter what house they move into, uh, that will be true. And I, I don't know if they're trying to get at that stuff or it's just a coincidence um, of the thematic stuff they're doing, but I, I couldn't help but notice. No, that's really cool. Um, what did you think of the heist itself? Because like, I, you know, it's, it's, I thought it was really cool. The touch of like sticking the gun barrel into the flames and burning Cal, like, you know, marking him with some kind of sign. Uh-huh. I thought that, uh, that stuff was all cool, but like, it also, a lot of the stuff doesn't make literal sense. Like <laughs> when the ring of fire in front of like, it was just like clear as like a three foot wall of fire. I'm like, just fucking drive through it, man. Right. Right, and then when they the 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 ring fully envelops them, and then suddenly Loy's dudes are there, the cannon gang is there. I'm like, well, shit! You apparently you just walk through this stuff, uh-huh. and you can certainly drive through it. So it's like, uh, and then I, another I, guy I, gets it, pushed into it, and and he immediately goes up in flames. Immediately yeah. goes up in flames. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It uh, raises questions. It's a little strange, um, almost supernatural in a way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like uh, like going back to like Daniel, his companions uh, in the uh, no, was it Daniel? No, it was those other Jewish gentlemen in Babylonian captivity, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Do you remember those guys? They I got thrown into the names. 
Lions thrown into pit? a burning furnace. Uh, no, that's Daniel. They got thrown uh, into a, a burning furnace, okay. and uh, they were able to walk around unharmed because they were righteous. Gotcha. Um, and and God protected from that judgment. They, I mean, I don't know. Like I I threw I just pulled that out of my Bible studies, uh, Bible school studies, but. Shit, there's so much Christian allegory that kind of gets woven in and out of the Cohen brothers' work and and uh, uh, and and this season of Fargo. Not not just, I mean, obviously there's like they're borrowing borrowing from all kinds of religious tradition. Yeah, but um, no, I I thought that was that was interesting. Do you? Th- I mean, do you? They kind of imply that they were supposed to kill uh, uh, Kalamita. Um, or at least I got that imp- uh, impression when in the next scene that you allude to, where Doctor Senator is like, you know, given the uh, Fada's consigliere a verbal tongue lashing about like, in my opinion, you're lucky that the, your other man didn't die, and he gives a significant look over to like, is, is it Otis or um, Odom maybe? Um, do you, do you think that that was supposed? Because I my, that's my thoughts. Like, why don't you just do the hit? No survivors. Well, I don't. I don't think they want to escalate to a war here, right? They want to. I feel like, you know, this is the pretend, maybe the pretend war that this, this guy, whatever, consigliere thinks uh, is happening right. here, but, but they yeah. don't want to start this war. You know, they're, they're right. feeling, feeling the Italians out and, and trying to see, okay, did they mean to, you know, for this hit to go off? Is there, you know, conflict within their ranks? What's happening? So I don't think he was supposed to die. Um Hmm. I think you're. I mean, I I think you're right because, like, I guess the 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 driver's just some boy, where this guy's a made man. You know, like maybe that's a distinction to make there. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I got the feeling that like Loy's guy just made an audible and decided to scar the guy rather than blow his head off. Um, yeah, I mean that definitely wasn't part of the plan, but I liked it. You know, it's he's got this perfectly manicured guy here, and now he's gonna put a big uh, O yeah, on his face. It's. It's amazing how they're able to convey what, how, how important this guy's physical appearance was to him, and just like yeah. a couple of seconds of scenes last last week, so you can get that this is going to be you know a major a major deal, and then we mm-hmm. get the Fargo theme, which we haven't heard for a couple episodes, and a lot of people were missing, but we got the classic Fargo theme over to Fargo, the lettering, uh, which As I enjoyed, the open and the close, um, it's yeah. over the closing credits too. Yeah, just something I don't know because, like you know, uh, every season of Fargo has kind of its own thing going on musically. Um, I think the first season was probably more ex- most explicitly Fargo-y in the theme, but like uh, this is a very different year. But like I like those majestic sweeping Fargo notes when they when they enter into the story. Uh, we already kind of talked about the Doctor Senator Consigliere Breakfast Round Two. Um, mm. Uh, but I, I thought it's still a great speech about like, you know, um, this guy being confused. There's so many things new about America and he, you know, you talk about American values, like what are those comparison to, you know, financial values, like what's something worth? That's something you can drive out empirically human values. You know, people are sentimental. They love things. That stuff makes sense. But, uh, mm-hmm. then the idea of like America being home of the brave land of the free and how that's you know, lip service, marketing material that we don't actually live by. And if I, you know, um, I think that's fairly accurate. You know, mm-hmm. uh, America, some, America, the, the va- American values are something that we uh, occasionally aspire to, or we certainly 
you know, um, encourage the, that, that the belief in the popular culture. But like, you know, it's like my man, Dan Carlin often says, like, you got American values and American interests. And when the values are not aligned with the interests, the values go out the window. Um, and, uh, you know, I, and if you, if you, if that makes angry or whatever, I'm going to fuck, get off your ass, work to, 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 to make, uh, the country match its marketing materials, what I got to say, but sure. Um, I love this story table. Every, every time I see the story table, I'm like, okay, yeah. Yeah. I'm starting to really like the what what's this what's this place named spuds, spuds. uh all time diner yeah. um it's 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 a great location good stuff is happening um and then this idea like this like they introduced this idea of a proxy war last episode and i wonder if they lean into that too hmm. you know like like uh you know the concept of proxy war and how that applies to like you know um geopolitical politics in the 21st century like it's no longer like proxy wars in a shooting sense it's more of like cyber warfare and economic warfare it seems like is the uh the bullets of the day but uh i, I, I also really like the choreography in this scene just the the it's almost a dance the way they're doing it right the the italians roll up outside you got mm-hmm. uh the guys in the diner the black guys in the diner who stand up and kind of you know head toward the door and block the way and they let one guy through but not the the underlings you know, and and when he goes and he puts on his hat to leave, and and reaches you know kind of over in his pocket to put some coins down, uh, they they're they're back up, they're around him, they're ready. Like mm-hmm. everything is so planned out. You can see all the the gears in motion here, and it it's so cool. It felt like proceedings at a royal court, which is going to dovetail nicely into the next scene. Um, but I I also just love this Doctor Senator, like the way his eye yeah. twitches when the Italian the Italian consigliere asks him, like, "Are we at war or not?" And he's like, "Well, not yet, but we're trying real hard." The way his <laughs> eye twitches when he's when in between saying those two things, I think is so fucking great. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, this is like a bad look for the Fata gang. The fact that they're house divided and. You know, you also have this other random, uh, but but you mentioning like uh, those guys standing and like challenging. It reminded me a lot of, uh, of um, you know, like the guards of a king's court. Like they got the axes crossed, they bear entry, and yeah. then the next scene when the oranges are coming in Loy Cannon's place, they're playing the drummer boy, which I thought was a really great call because it reinforces the Christmas theme of the episode uh, of this, I guess, season. Um, and also the pum 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 is like a nice little automatopoeia for like, you know, military rifles, pop, 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 pop. Mm-hmm. And these gifts we bring to lay before the king, like make an explicit connection to uh, Cannon's royal status. I thought all those things kind of like work together in, in a nice little visual storytelling. Yeah. Um, did you get so so we have 300 guns coming from New York. Um, it's very clear to me that Gaetano is the one that ordered this, right? Sure. I mean, it's his guys, essentially. Um, it's, you know, Calamita. We're bringing and, him in. Yeah, and some other dude who we've probably seen in his circles, but yeah, they're bringing him in. So I assume it's it's Gatano doing it. Yeah, there's a full-on shadow organization going on here in the Fada gang, and uh, I thought that was interesting. That Mort Kellerman was name-checked. Do you remember this guy? I didn't, but I saw in uh, Alan Steppenwall's review who he is, um, and that he's been in one of the flashbacks in season two. Yeah, so season two, you had the Gerhardt clan as the main, the, the primary gang, um, which is interesting because they had a fish out of water character, the Hanzi. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and as one of their enforcers in the gang. And you had, uh, uh, you know, Dieter Gerhardt was kind of like rivals, but also, you know, associates of this uh, Mort Kellerman, and they'd gotten along very well. And sometime in the early 50s, or no, I th- was it early 50s or late 40s? Um uh, no, yeah, it was the early 50s. Mort Kellerman decided to, to liquidate um, Dieter Gerhardt and then freeze out the Gerhardt clan. And then uh, Otto, which was the, the, the father of the two main gangsters, uh, uh, Dodd and Bear, goes to have an audience with him when he's watching some Ronald Reagan film in a movie theater. And he has his younger son murder him while he's distracting him. Yeah, um, which it feels very Godfather as well. Very Godfather, and there's also an element of like butterflies flapping their wings in China, causing a hurricane in New York City. Because it's entirely possible that if Loy Cannon doesn't give Mort Kellerman these 200 military rifles, that that's what get, that's what causes the gang battle. Like less than a year later, he's going to kill his chief rival, and less than a year after that, he's going to be murdered in this theater. Yeah, it's like weird kind of like you know that that's that, that, i feel like they're doing they are doing something with this proxy war unintended consequences um short-term political interest versus long-term you know peace and stability kind of things i i thought it's 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 it's, it's really interesting i expect it not to be like explicit though i expect it to be all just implied and like subtext yeah know, subtext yeah sure Sure. I also love. I thought. I thought. Uh, you know, we're. I'm looking for ways for. Um, you know, Chris Rock to like impress me as a gangster mastermind, and I liked how he quickly d- determines the truth of you know because Doctor uh, Senator's trying to sell him on like, hey, you know, it could be the Italians. You know, like Italians. For what we know, uh, they're really prejudiced to everyone who's not Italian. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, the fact that they would use, and they also. Um, um, has core values of machismo would it be fair to say like they're yeah. probably that the idea that they would hire a half black half indian gang of of women to stick this place up like like loy said uh well, they could have done to throw themselves off he's like nah nobody's stupid and smart at the same time this this here just crime i'm Got not two sure bodies. he's right about that I'm not sure that's a truism. Uh, it might or, not be true about fadas because you literally might have a smart one. Well, I don't know. You might have two idiots over there. Um, yeah, you might. I don't know what Justin's deal is, but but you could have a person being smart and dumb at the same time if you had an organization as being t- you know tug of war between yeah. two characters. Um, not that I think Josto has has been portrayed as smart so far not really but i like that i thought that like he was very cool the way he just kind of like intellectually dissected all that and kind of came to the correct conclusion that there we just got we got two rando bonnies mm-hmm. um which i thought was cool um and then the last bit of uh canon business is then deciding to press up the rabbi yeah and you know uh what do you think about was loy a credible threat that he was he pretty menacing with that knife absolutely i thought so um yeah. Chris Rock was everything he needed to be in this scene. Uh yeah, and I, I was impressed. Tough. Um what do you uh what what do you think of this scene is from the rabbi's perspective? Um because he mentions is like, you know, you killed your own family. This isn't your family. And he makes fun of him like daddy daddy. At one point rabbi holds his hand his hand, the back of his hand against like 
Loy's face and says, was he like making a joke about you're not my family neither? Was that what the... Maybe. I, I'm not certain, but you could be right. Yeah, I, I was that's a little confused I, by that scene. I honestly was too. I, I, I know it tracks back with what Loy said about, you know, oh, daddy, daddy. And he's like, mom... Like I, I, and I think it's something about like the fact that it's completely futile to say these people aren't your family when you're even more so not my family. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I don't know. They he he gave, he gave him a little warning cut and says anything that happens to my boy, uh, I'm gonna feed you to the pigs. Mm-hmm. So I've seen uh, I've I've seen uh, snatched. I know how that goes. Yeah, and uh, I don't, I don't uh, know what um... full grown pig can go through a man's bones like butter. Hell yeah. Yeah, they, P- they, teeth and hair—they eat it all. They love it. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, this is the—you know—the predicament that Rabbi's in. He's in this rock and hard place situation, right? And, and and I'm not even sure how he feels about it exactly. I don't know that they've quite done enough to tell me—is he loyal to the Italian family, uh, to the Fadas, or is he just a victim of circumstance? Right, like. He was a boy when he helped them kill the Irish, uh, kill his family. Yeah. Uh, right. And I don't know how much of that was just him being a, a boy who, you know, had some mixed up ideas in his head and how much that has changed as he's become a man um, or if that has changed. They, they man, I just I just really want a scene which kind of spells it out. Um, that, so it's. Have you seen the speculation based on his mugshot in the first episode where um, it has his first arrest record back in 1914? No. That his charges are buggery and perversion. 1914? How old is Rabbi? No, no, no. I'm sorry. This is his dad. Oh, Owen okay. Mulligan, okay. Oni Mulligan. Okay. That makes no, a lot sorry. more sense. There's this theory that um, that this guy's a pervert and he's a kid diddler. And that the reason the rabbi betrayed him is because he was trying to protect his younger brother from from this. Huh. And I guess it's the the hostage as well, you know. Okay. Um, but I don't know. That's like that's just essentially like, well, why would a guy turn against his father? And also, like, why in a mugshot would you put buggery and perversion? You know, I mean, that, that's like also 1914. He, the dude could just be gay. He could just be a closeted gay man. Yeah. And the police put him on that. And now we're like, now we're doing the ancient gay slur of, oh my God, they're fucking pedophiles. So like, right. I'm, I'm pumping the brakes a little bit on that, but I did want to put it out because I, I saw a lot of people were, were speculating about it, at least on, on Reddit. And it would make perfect sense. Like if that was what his dad was getting, getting business, he's getting up to like that, that explains a lot, that explains yeah. a lot of like retribution and anger and shame and all kinds of different things. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to move on the fada business, which you know, as you said, it's it's interleaved with the the canon business. So a lot of this is going to be kind of just connected material. But the most the first thing is like Rabbi, like the good boy he is, went right to Josto and said, "Look, I you know, hey, if I made the wrong call, fuck me, I'll take the consequences." Yeah, but the dude's loyal. The dude's mm-hmm. the the dude's loyal and honest, and like think Josto's smart enough to see that, but not smart enough to like maybe treat him, can you know, like that. Yeah, Josto's, you know, he's got uh, some, I, I don't know, he he seems like a small man trying to prove that he's not uh, in a lot of ways, right? Um, yeah, and, and those guys can still do a lot of damage, you can still blow your nuts, those guys can blow your nuts absolutely. off, but they're, 
there is something ch- utterly childish in the way he's like throwing snowballs out of anger in this scene. Uh huh. And, and then and yeah. then then eating then half then then like cr- then starting to eat the snow. It's like and I fucking love out. it. It's hilarious. Yeah, Jason Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman does a great job in this scene. Uh, it doesn't doesn't help me take him more seriously, <laughs> but it does entertain the hell out of me. Yeah, he is he is a little bit ridiculous. Uh, so his new mission is to be a bird on the wire. He wants the, this guy to watch. Uh, this this is a dangerous mission mm-hmm. to send the rabbi on because these guys. It seems like Gaetano and his crew are already prone to suspect. The the Irish uh, Jewish gentleman amongst them, the one who's uh, the guy not that stopped Italian. the last hit that they tried to pull off. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the one who's yeah, not yeah, not just the fact that his blood didn't flow from it uh, from Sicily, but like holy shit, the guy guy actually uh, went against, but not the family went against the Gaetano faction, which is going to be interesting. Yeah. So Josto didn't really uh, impress us much in this this episode until we get to him busting up Gaetano's war council in the mm-hmm. billiards parlor. Um, and he starts shooting the place up, just like winging bullets over Gaetano's head. And then Gaetano tries to flex on him. And he says, you know, they stole from us. They killed our men. They laugh at us because we're weak. And Josto says, well, we are weak because you're weak because you fucked up a hit. And now our enemy has 300 guns, genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've already gone, apparently gone to New York and arranged all this shit. So, like, it's put me in a weird position of being able to... You you know negotiate maneuver myself. Who wins this confrontation? Because Justo, like, yeah, I mean, I thought so too. Why? Yeah, why mean, do you say so? Because he <laughs> he almost literally emasculates uh, Gaetano in this scene. I mean, the, the bang at the end when he says "bang," he's saying, "I, I just." I just made you my bitch, essentially. Uh, yeah, I love that. Like, I, you know, like, I didn't have to physically do it, but I just literally cut your balls off in front of your dudes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's no doubt so in my wants. mind that he would have pulled that trigger. Like, he's got yeah. the capacity for for violence. Um, he's ballsy. The same way he he kind of told off the, the, the alderman or councilman or whatever. Like, I'm going to slow pump babies. And, like, <laughs> yeah. he, he has no problem... You know, having that kind of like Joe Pesci mouth in, in Goodfellas, like he 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 does carry it off somewhat, and you know he does. Wep- guns are the great equalizer. So, yeah, uh, no, I, I like the scene a lot. I I think it's not over. Obviously, like the next stage of this is going to kick in. Gaetano is not going to back down. He did in this scene, but a longer term, he's going to come back probably even harder than he did before. I don't I don't know where this goes, but it's intensely exciting. The problem is, though, from what my estimation is, Gaetano has no muscle, um, with the exception of Calamita. Yeah, and that guy, uh, you know, Cannon's crew calls him all bark, no bite. Uh, he fucked up the hit. He wasn't going to shoot the guy himself. Like, does Gaetano's ferocious, but like, he's got two guys who are milk toast and afraid of him, and probably prone to betraying him for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, because Josto's kind of crazy, but not this like bug eyed, like gonna maybe just pull a gun and shoot you, maybe pull a knife and skin you, kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, who's he got other than he does have some muscle in New York that's willing to the to, to send him three hundred guns just on a a wink and a promise, I guess. Sure. Um, and then finally, in the last bit of official Weff business or not Weff is his fada business. Uh, he calls Weff to his uh, uh to the department store. 
uh, that he owns and does all of his operation out of the the pud pulling center of uh, the town mm-hmm. <laughs> of Kansas City. And he tell he gives these guys consigliere there, and he's got uh, Weff, and he tells Weff that you got to start busting cannon heads. You got to go out there and start ripping and rolling on street corners. You got to start hassling him. You got to make sure that they know it's a war against us and City Hall. Yeah. It's a problem for Weff because he's got <laughs> hard ass Mormon Deffy, yeah. not hearing what he doesn't want to hear, U.S. Marshal up his ass. And then he gives the consigliere like a a, a schizophrenic mission, like, "Hey, yep. go to New York, tell everything's fine." But also, hey, if you got some guys to spare, like, and then the consigliere points him points it out, and he blows up at him. Yeah. So I I don't know what to make of this Fada crew. They they seem very just. They're going to get their lunch eaten by the Cannon Gang, and I'm kind of I'm I was already coming into the you know just kind of rooting for Cannon and mm-hmm. for whatever reason, and now I just think that they're going to get they're going to get ran off the the map. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the schizophrenic mission. It's it's not even just that he's going there asking for a few guys because you know this this thing is going poorly, but also not being able to tell them that. Uh, it's that 300 guns were just ordered from New York as well. Right. What does that look like in context, right? If you're going there asking for a few guys to wield the 300 guns you've just ordered. Yeah. 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 Uh, Gatano put him in a bad situation, too. We just, we get you the heavy hardware. Well, you know, how's that going? Oh, you know, it's going all right. Yeah. It's just, you know, we get the 300 guns. I don't got 300, don't have 300 guys, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's going to be a hard sell. Yeah. It's like, take the 300 guns, get the money, then get the money. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, I, it's, and I don't. I would hate to be. I, I'm wondering if we'll get a little like uh, Tom Hagen goes to L.A. negotiate. I would love to see the like New York guys and yeah. the w- how they treat the Midwestern dudes. And like, I, I think that would be fascinating to see. Kind of like where did the fattest stand? The fattest stand in in the overall mafia hierarchy. Yeah, I gotta think in 1950s, like Kansas City is like the jerk off league, right? Oh, for sure. It's it's New York. Is the, yeah, the like, epicenter? Like uh, according to Casino, like later on when the gang when when organized crime gets run out of the East Coast, like that becomes like the stronghold. The you know like the the monitoring of all the the mafia shit going down in Vegas, all that kind of stuff. But like this is not then. This is the height yeah. of the five families business. So yeah, um, I want to move on to Nurse Mayflower business. Okay, she's got a lot of business this episode. She's given she's we we start off her giving Josto the business. <laughs> uh, we sure do. Uh, getting the old, uh, you, you know, we we had the tut the the pud pulling last episode. Now we got the full choke slam. Mm-hmm. And Josto doesn't even know what hit him. He's just like, what even was that? He, it's... Yeah, she just lays a stone cold stunner on him. He doesn't know what to he doesn't know what to do about it. Um, and I love how they go from that to. Something about how crass or or vulgar he's being, or something. Right after yeah. that, she chastises him for it. I'm like, we f- we fly elevated in this house, Jim. D- sure, sure. If by <laughs> elevated you mean the high you get when the oxygen is cut off to your brain, <laughs> sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right at the right at the moment of uh, climax. Uh-huh. There's also like this, like yeah, she's got this really like twisted and you know of Green Gables notion of romanticism. Because uh, she's hmm. she's just a fucking contradiction of of these like vulgarities and profanities and yet like these high minded ideals as far as like speech and action. She seems like she's a social a bit of a social climber. She's talking about reading about Istanbul and the and Egyptian history. 
Um, there's also a little nice nod between pretend things because you know they get in a, uh, they t- t- she said uh, she thought Istanbul is where Casablanca is filmed mm-hmm. and he's like yeah. nah Casablanca is filmed in Casablanca which I that's not even doesn't even mean anything like if it was going to be filmed on location it'd be in Morocco nah. but I, I'm sure you saw this uh, that like the entirety of Casablanca was filmed in Burbank California yeah on it's set. all yeah it's all bullshit it's all bullshit all the way down. Um, so I I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, but, uh, you know, he also mentions that like, uh, you know, he has to be a tough guy, you know, like I sleep with one eye open with a razor blade between our teeth. And she points out, if you sleep with your mouth full of razors, you're going to cut your own throat. Yeah. I mean, those are portents, right, Jim? Oh yeah. When you got a, you got this character associated with already kind of like a little bit of supernatural evil prophesying doom based on your own words. Like this is, uh. Yeah, this is some Hamlet type type shit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's good writing too. I love it. I love it. Um, so you've got the uh, Ethelreda calls at the at the end of this, and and uh, Mayflower perceives as her running Josto off, which I think is you know her connection to something better. And she's briefly annoyed, but then Ethelreda reminds her that she offered to pay her fifty cents to a dollar for organizing type work. And this is house cleaning. She goes in. Uh, Mayflower's house is a bit of a wreck lately, um, which is wild because I feel like she'd have a lot of time on her hands, you know, in between jobs before, yeah. you know, she started with the new place. But um, she offers to, to do three hours of labor for a, a dollar. There's this mysterious side uh, closet that she's told to not worry about. Yeah. Uh, ridiculous. Well, and then as soon as you saw that, it's like, okay, well, that's a big point of interest. A teenager is going yeah. to definitely get up in that business. Um, what 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 do we find in the the closet, Jim? Oh, we found uh, what the audience recognizes as evidence of a bunch of murders, and I think Ethel Rita also uh, recognizes that it's it's all the chemicals she uses to kill people in the hospitals. It's uh, obituaries cut from newspapers, and it's jewelry and knickknacks and trinkets from the the people who uh, were killed. Yeah, it's trophies. Um, uh-huh. I've, I did a little bit of research on this, like these man chosen by proxy kind of like angel of death things. And I guess that's often a lot of the, the times how they get caught, you know, not just like looking at their medical records, but because they just, you know, first of all, like it's very hard to catch these people, especially back in the day. Like, you know, when medicine wasn't so good and people just die of mysterious reasons and you didn't have, like, you know, chemical analysis and autopsies, like, you would just get away and get away and get away and start getting bolder and bolder. And, you know, she's got this big game trophy hunting room. And Ethelita's smart enough to put two and two together. By the way, I love the pacing in this scene. Yeah. Like, you know, they really take... You're just watching Ethelita fuck around in an apartment to, like, this, you know, uh, French French music. Mm-hmm. And it's very cultured, and you can see Ethelita like dreaming of, uh, you know, it, it's kind of like it reminded me of Loy Cannon's speech about someone getting a dream. Like she's starting to she's starting to think better things for herself, right? And she finds this box, um, but that added so much to the tension. The fact that like you you don't know how far along Mayflower is going to be away. Mm-hmm. Uh, like when she gets in this room, she kind of loses track. As you can see, like the record starts to script the 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 skip, and she doesn't know it. And I just started thinking, like, oh my god, the 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 cat's almost knocking shit over. Like I was on pins and needles for this whole scene. And they they um, play with what the audience knows and what Ethel Rita knows. Um, in any yeah. given moment of this scene, like 
when she walks in the closet and we see the epicac on the shelf, we're like, oh, no, the jig is up. Uh, she's going to know about the pie. But of course, she couldn't know about the pie, right? She hasn't she hasn't spoken to Swanee, who got sick from the pie yet, as far as we know. Uh, we as an audience know that the epicac is a problem, but she doesn't. And so she doesn't think anything of it when she sees it. And we as an audience also think we're, we're so focused on the epicac that we don't necessarily see the other things that are going to be the big discoveries, right? The twist in the scene is not that she discovers the epicac, it's she discovers murders. Right, 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 right. And you can see others. There's like a bottle of laudanum, which is essentially uh, alcohol and opium. It's essentially liquid morphine um, and uh, some other like mineral oil, which I think is used to treat constipation but if you gave like a healthy person it would like, induce like diarrhea and all these others like so, so these are the tools hmm. of her trade yeah i've been wondering about this fodder ring and the fact that like ethel reed has got it now there's going to that's that's going to be something i so there are like, two it's weird that the fadas aren't obsessed with it because like at some right, point right. they're gonna have to yeah like like if this is as important as i think it is and why hasn't anyone mentioned it four episodes in but let yeah it's got to be important i thought it was important um and here it's it's coming back, so it's probably going to be more important. There, there are two things that come out of this scene, right? She has the ring, and secondly, she leaves her journal in that closet. So obviously, you know, she's going to be found out. Like, her, her oh, discoveries shit. are going to be found out. Right. Although, I don't know, maybe she can go back, and I wonder if there's going to be a scene where she sneaks everything back. Um... Yeah, I don't know. She runs out, and they do a conspicuous close-up of it, so probably not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Plus, it's just. Um, although, I, I, let's let's game this out. Um, she finds out that this teenager's been snooping. What does she do? Does she try to like kill her surreptitiously, or does she? Because like you Probably. know, she can't very well be like, "God damn it, you're stealing things from me. I'm gonna call the police because the police yeah. will come." And you know, I mean, this, this is this <laughs> the problem writ large here, or writ small here, right? Like. The gangster uh, problem. Like, what are you going to do? You going to call the cops uh, to help settle yeah. your your scores? No. When, you, when when you're a criminal and you get robbed, or someone does, like you are an outlaw. You're outside of protection of the legal system, so you either got to settle yeah. for yourself, you got to let it go. Same with the Smutneys, right? Like I, they went to the mm. black mafia to get their money. We're, we're going to talk about this later, but can mm. they go to the cops now that you know the jig is up on that? Who knows? Yeah. Oof. Um. So let's move on to police business. Uh, you, we see that there's a night man that has been bribed to give false testimony about uh, the uh, uh, Swanee and Zelmer uh, running off to um, yeah. Chicago, right? I, I mean, assume it's pretty fucking. What, it's a lame Otis. scene. Yeah, Co- yeah, coach the guy, right? Yeah, I mean, he gives him like a twenty, and and uh, but but this is just so fucking lame. Mm-hmm. It's painful to watch, but that's. Kind like that's it's it's interesting because there is that element in Fargo, right? Inept criminals, yeah, absolutely contrasted yeah. to like very ruthlessly competent criminals. So it's like, yeah, this all is the way all back just to the farce. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is all this is all kind of like played as a farce. And the mm-hmm. fact that like I don't know what to make about Weff because Weff is starting to seem like um, the uh, William H Macy of yep. police officers because it's one thing to try this lame thing. But then when it blows up in your face to just like act as if it worked, that's where you start thinking the guy's just not got it, man. Like you take your shot, yeah. you miss your shot, and you're like, ah, you know what? I this guy's usually reliable. Like I did, maybe he's trying to grub money off of me. You you pay it off, but he plays it off as like, well, I guess you're gonna go pack off the 
you know, Chicago completely misunderstanding, first of all, how stupid yeah. this marshal is and what the U.S. Marshal Service is even about. Um, That's the thing. I, I don't like they're, they're They were making him out to be like this really good detective. Right. And I think that's completely shown to be false at this point. He's an incompetent bozo. Um, well, he's desperate. He's good. But he's 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 desperate because he doesn't have any good plays with this U.S. Marshal in town. Well, I mean, so um, many of the characters, look, look at all the characters. They're all the, these American values, right? They're saying what the one thing, they're the mm. pretend war. They're saying they're not at war, and yet here they are doing the things that make them at war. Like, uh, the Marshal Deffy is also that way, right? Like, he claims to be this lawman who's uh, upholding righteousness and justice, and yet for the last couple of episodes, every time we've had an interaction with him, he's talking about how he doesn't like minorities, um and and now he's how he's done this extra legal thing of essentially like dragging a bunch of Italians who came into the the Salt Lake City area uh until their heads popped off because they just didn't want him around. Right. It, it's he's not a good guy. Uh he's not looking out for justice. He's saying he is. He's wearing the uniform, but he's not walking the walk. Yeah. And like, you know, that's the other question. Like, were these Italian guys actually gangsters or were they just Italians? Yeah, open they question. Got, they got they got murdered out of prejudice, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and prejudice, you know, prejudice police are are sloppy, lazy police too. Like they just make a they make sloppy assumptions. Um, that, yeah. that they get him into a lot of trouble. But it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to watch this guy dangling like a like because he's you know I I I question this episode back in the Fada business. Why didn't he tell Josto about this new threat? Like like hey. I want to help you as much as I can, but I have a U.S. Marshal up my ass. This is a whole other different league than this this small town Kansas City bullshit, right? Maybe because like, he didn't realize that it was. Because in this scene, like you pointed out, he's doesn't even understand what a marshal is. You know? Yeah, the fact that they're like federal and re- it's possible. And I also just wonder, like, what is his deal? What is the five? You know, the little Indians. Like, what what is the what is his damage? You yeah. know, is this uh? If he's got, if he's just got OCD, how did he be, you know, with with as much prejudice as people showing against this mental illness on the show? Like, how did he get to be a detective? Mm-hmm. And if there's more to the story, what is it? Like, how is he this embedded in the system? Um, there's got to be more to that story. Uh, so, like, you know, then you get the the rabbi coming and giving him the the hoodwink right in front of the U.S. Marshal. And the thing is, is like Deffy's seeing all of this. Yeah. Like at this point, he's just like, you know what? Hey, look, this isn't my deal, but I'm going to get I'm going to I'm going to make it my deal just a little bit. I mean, he's following the primrose path in hopes that it opens up to, I don't know, some sort of uh, truth vineyard here. Right. Like, right, right. And as a soldier of Christ, you know he's uh, he's invested to root out corruption and evil anywhere. So, mm-hmm. uh, but but I love them pulling up to Jopin's uh, uh, department store, and you see Gaetano come out like with his big ass fucking knife front and center, like almost in his dick position, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> right. Um, and he sees all this. This guy's got this storm cloud, and he just decides he's going to get out and fuck with these guys. He doesn't identify himself as a marshal or a law no. enforcement. He just, uh, you know, he's Raylan Givens, and he can he can put a plug in these guys anytime he wants. So he's got no fear. Um, Gaetano gives him the evil eye. Any, you know, we're, we're going to talk about the supernatural here momentarily. Uh, anything to that? Hmm. I hadn't thought about it other than that's what he does when he's about to kill somebody. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, but I don't know. Yeah, he, we already kind of talked about like him. He he reaches in his pocket, looks like he's pulling out his gun. He just pulls out his handkerchief with carrots and starts talking about how the fact you know they ran the Italians out of their town. Yeah, um, I'm I'm, so I'm I, immensely enjoying uh, Timothy Elephant's performance here. It's it's not yeah. quite like any of the other you know sheriff style. No, uh, he's, he's not a fully good guy. Like Seth Bullock, right. Raylan Givens are you know they're not like paragons of virtue for but but they are unambiguously good guys yeah you know this guy is not mm-hmm. he's like he's like the dark side Raylan Givens but I I bring all I don't I like I assume this guy's a, a a deft hand with a gun I don't know why I assume that I assume that because he is in all of his other characters right. so um are they going to play against type and he actually is is all bark and no no bite maybe when somebody shows that little concern in what's clearly a confrontation i think they're immensely confident in their skills and yeah yeah it's no different here yeah or an ace bullshitter but like it's hard to Hmm. because these guys are dangerous guys you know like this guy's got a fucking shotgun barrel burnt onto his and and you know gaetano just manifestly is like bad news you just want to stay away from him and he just goes and gets up in their shit uh i want to get spooky for a minute jim i want to get i want to talk about the ghost story aspect of this um episode so in the very beginning we talked about the different um you can we kind of get his potpourri of all the different action from the characters but we see ethel rita uh doing homework apparently or no she's actually writing a letter it looked like Hmm. Which I'm wondering who she's writing to or, or what, but uh, we also see the body prep area of the morgue. It's this contrast between the upstairs life, which is all kind of wholesome and family oriented, versus the dark and dripping kind of dungeon esque morgue. And you see it, and it's all shot like a horror film too, mm-hmm. like all the point of view shots. And Ethelita is hears this creaking outside of her door. She goes to look, and there's this man sitting on the steps, and it turns around. He's fucking cadaverous. He's missing his nose. His eyes are roomy. He looks like a fresh zombie off The Walking Dead. Yeah. She shuts her door and like, you know, again, this is shot like something out of The Conjuring. She's like, you know, bracing her whole body against it, terrified. And then you hear what I think is the ghost get up and go downstairs. Mm-hmm. And then that's that's it. There's no... Ethelita doesn't make anything of this. There's nothing else mentioned or said. Um, this could be a night terror. Who knows? And then... Zalmera is literally laundering cash, Walter White style, yeah. in in the bathtub of their little flop house. And Swanee starts stirring, and uh, Zalmera goes to check on her, and something in the tub gets up and rises, and it's this faceless or this is noseless corpse man, and it starts like something pulls the covers off of Swanee. It starts raining. I think blood or mud, perhaps from the ceiling. Hmm. I couldn't tell exactly. It looked like it, it, it could be maybe old cadaverous blood or it's mud. Yeah. Um, and this man, like Zalmer shuts her eyes as this presence walks past, pauses by Swanee and then takes away and then takes off. And Swanee is there shivering and throwing up. And she, she comforts her and says, don't mind Mr. Snowman. Also, in the first episode, remember we we remember that that the mysterious presence that we pan over on the street, and someone zoomed in on that, and it's a dead ringer for Mister Snowman. It wasn't mm-hmm. Timothy Oliphant, as I surmised. It's this it's this ghostly corpse character. Yeah. 
this goes on to like we talked about with Swanee's last episode where she talks about, you know, things that haunt are not, you know, they don't haunt places. They haunt people that there's some evil followed the, you know, Smutney family or, or uh, Zalmer and the Brills family from Mississippi. Is there a ghost in this season of Fargo? What is Fargo's tolerance for the supernatural? It certainly looks like it. I I look at these two scenes and I say, okay, one of these could very well be some kind of um, thematic, like an allegory sort of thing where you've got this, you know, this specter of death sort of approaching uh, Swanee and she's already like feeling very bad. And then, you know, immediately after this happens, uh, Zalmeyer goes over and rolls her over and has to shake her awake and thinks she's dead. Like all of this could be figurative, right? Um, mm-hmm. with this this character, uh, this figure. But then I, I look at the scene with Ethel Rita at the beginning, and she's clearly affected by it. What she's seeing there is something that she very much really sees, and that scares the shit out of her. Uh, conjuring style, like you mentioned. But then you're right, it goes on to not mention any of that, right? She goes on with her day-to-day, she doesn't mention it to her parents, although they have talked about it. Um, so maybe it's, it's it, it could be, you know, the, the seed of this was planted in her mind um, by Swanee and her story about the haunting, and so now she's just seeing things, or it could be that, like, she really saw something, and she just didn't bring it to her family, because they already know, and they've already talked about it. I... I don't know. It's it's muddy. I got the feeling that her her mom tries to keep this from Ethel Rita. Like yeah. hearing her aunt and uh, her aunt's lover talk about this is the first time. But like, I want to go and review the supernatural in Fargo uh, that we've seen thus far. In season one, okay. we had the character of Lauren Malvo played by uh, Billy Bob Thornton. There was a theory that he was literally the devil himself because of um, he was able to get in and out of situations like there was an instance with like the bathroom where like a light malfunction happened he disappeared he got out of a bat a basement with only one exit mm-hmm. uh undetected by the police uh he was his instigator of evil he could go up to these people who are normal and inspire them with like a touch or a word to commit insane acts of violence out of seemingly nowhere yeah um he had a quote after eating a a, a slice of apple pie which is another interesting connection to Nurse Mayflower. He says, that's the best apple pie I've had since the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, he uh, later on gets killed, and like those theories went by the wayside, but that's interesting. Also in that season, Lorne Malvo tries to convince a target of his uh, operations that he's going insane, and he does this by making him think that a biblical plague of... Uh, or a bi- all the biblical plagues are... Um, go. He, he released locusts in his store. He fucks with the plumbing in his house to make shower of blood. All this mm-hmm. kind of stuff happened. It culminates in a fish nado. Okay, a, a literal bit, like a rain of, of fish and frogs and all this other kind of shit falling on the car it causes a car wreck, um, which is is possible. We you know we we looked this up. Uh, we went into great detail in the first season about this, but a fish nato is this, possible. This can it 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 can happen. It's very unlikely, yeah. and you know, but it, it can happen. In season two, 
as far as the paranormal, they, a literal UFO shows up at the climax of the season, spoils a shootout, and has a profound effect on the plot. Comes out of nowhere, yeah. really. They kind of hint it, and there's like there's definite hints that there's like some paranormal shit happening, but then. Then in season three, and let's uh, let's make note that you know aliens not necessarily supernatural uh, in the sense that we're talking about, right? But but you, you definitely they fall under the paranormal, like right? Like it, it, yes, it's abnormal outside, certainly, yeah. Outside of our current understanding of science and whatnot. Then sure. in season three, you have the Paul Moraine character, who a lot of people theorized represents this uh, mythical character called the Wandering Jew. Uh, which, according to Wikipedia, is this a supposedly mythical immortal man who wanders the world because, you know, he did some insult to Christ or he did some other thing that 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 made him be cursed uh, to to wander the earth. Um, and he pops up in season three a couple of times to give advice to characters. But the most noticeable time he pops up is when. Uh, there's this incident with Nikki Swango and Mr. Wrench where they're in a prison bus and the Vargas criminal outfit uh, has this Yuri enforcer, the guy that wears the wolf hat, the wolf heads, uh, to go and, and kill these guys on route, to assassinate them on route to the prison. They flip over the bus. There's this fight. Swango and Mr. Wrench flee through the woods. Uh, they're followed there by uh, Yuri and his gang with crossbows. Mr. Wrench takes a crossbow to the throat. Swango, I think, takes two crossbows to her thigh and to maybe her abdomen. And then there are, uh, they fight the attackers off. Um, Yuri's still alive. He loses his ear. Swango and Mr. Wrench stagger into the woods. They come across a clearing where there's this brightly lit bowling alley in the middle of nowhere. They go inside. They meet this character, Paul Moraine, and he hands her a kitten called Ray, who I think they hint is the soul of her lover that just, you know, the other one of the Ewan McGregor brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, he he gives their, he, he says something that like Mr. Wrench, that they debated about keeping Mr. Wrench here, but he was able to talk the powers to be into letting him go because he's on a better path now. He gives them a car and then tells them to go essentially fight evil. Then Yuri stumbles in, who is a Russian Cossack. This is a lot of backstory, but... <laughs> Yuri stumbles in, missing his ear to this bowling alley, and then gets this vision of these dead Russian Jews that were murdered in the 18th century, and the idea of the souls of these people that his ancestors murdered delivered judgment to him. Okay? Uh... And then that's, you know, like that. So like, is, was this heaven? Was this all like, were, was, was this all, you know, in, in Swango and Yuri and Wrench's head? I, I don't know. But the, but... But if you're new to Fargo, um, and maybe Coen Brothers in general, films in general, because they like uh, Coen Brothers shit all has this, you know, like UF unexplained UFO experiences, unstoppable supernatural evil forces, like that's in the Coen palette. So, is this an actual no shit ghost? Um, I would, I, I. I would say that you almost it, it, it couldn't be except for like the 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 UFO in season two that actually turned out to be a real thing, right? Um, and, and like you mentioned, it definitely affects the plot, right? It's not something they're doing that's thematic. Um, it's yes. something that comes out of nowhere, uh, is semi supernatural, and also blows the plot to pieces. Um, yeah. And it makes me wonder if they're going to be doing something later with the ghosts like that, or if they haven't already done that. Like I'm. I'm wondering about uh, Orietta at this point. Like, is 
she perhaps one of these alien type things. I and mean, we've talked about, you know, her relation to Malvo and that she's kind of this agent of chaos, but it could be more than that, right? This could be part of the ghost that's haunting this family because why is she making a pie for this family, filling it with Epicac, trying to harass them and haunt them uh, if she doesn't have any connection to them? Oh God, theory. Lorne Malvo, bastard child of Josto, uh, Fada, and Nurse Mayflower. Oh God! <laughs> um, with those 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 evil apple pie connections. So here's the thing: I I actually I'm gonna do a little bit of devil's advocate. I'm gonna do a little bit of Lorne Malvo advocacy here. Okay. Because I actually do think it's just, I think it's a ghost. Like you, you're yeah. right. The fact that two people see this, it's connection. It's it's like this family haunting. It ties into what Swanee said last episode. But there's another interpretation. We already have a character who's has a severe mental illness in this season. This season, you got this. You know, uh, uh, Wef has got at least OCD, probably a severe case of Tourette's to go along with it. He's just kind of like you know uh, a, a whole host of barely treated, barely under control things he's dealing with. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, mental illnesses manifest themselves when you're in your late teens to early twenties. And I wonder, like, and that's another way to a, a curse or a haunting could follow a bloodline or family, because we know that a lot of times mental illness or being prone to mental illnesses and addiction problems, that is somehow in some way heritable. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, like, there this this that kind of hallucination, um, this this kind of um, schizophrenia. They're they're hinting because because I, I get a little bit of some kind of manic energy from honestly both Swanee and. Uh, Zalmera. It could be just them them being irrepressible bonnies running sure. around fucking shit up, and it's like you know. But like there is, there is something a little off kilter about Zalmera. I thought, um, and I it would be it would be interesting. I think to have this be not a literal haunting, but like some kind of like genetic mental illness runs in a family. You know, another you know, this is a this is a this is a meditation on privilege in a lot of ways this season, you know, what it means to be an American, what it means to be a good American, what it means to be white, um, you know, frustrations of women and, and versus men. Um, another privilege is whether you're, you know, like, uh, whether you're mentally ill or not, that's a, that's a roll of the dice. I think it'd be interesting sure. to, to take it to that. I, I, to, to be clear, I, I do think it's a ghost. I think it's a real ghost, but it also could be, you know, exacerbated by an existing mental illness or a developing one, that uh, you know, Ethelreda is is perhaps starting to suffer from. So I just want to throw that yeah. out there. You could definitely do both. All right, so let's let's uh, swing around to uh, to deal with our last of the business. A short piece of business is Smutney business. Uh, Zalmera delivers a bunch of cash to Thurmond. You don't question the money fairy when it comes to deliver the cash. No, you always question the money fairy. <laughs> the money fairy yeah. always comes with strings, right? Yes, yes, it does. When a, someone dumps you a bag of cash, unless you're already hip deep in a criminal enterprise, ask the questions because uh, sure. you're almost almost a certainly about to engage yourself into a criminal enterprise if you don't. Yeah. Um, but you know, I get the idea that the Mister Smutney maybe is not the brains of the operation. Mm-hmm. He might be like real crack at cadaver work and you know making up corpses and and glad handing his most valuable people. asset is that he's white right i yeah. mean <laughs> it's yeah 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 it's, yeah it's sad it's unfortunate but that's how it is in this show uh right. in this he's country the face. he's the face yeah um 
but yeah, the, so there, there's also, um, you know, this this idea that uh, uh, Zalmera and uh, Swanee are going to be in town for another couple of days, and she tells them where they're staying at, which is probably going to propel the action in the next in the next yeah. few episodes. Uh, but you got, um, you know, Loy peeling oranges, which, as we know, is one of the most dangerous things you can do in a gangster film. Mm-hmm. And he's thinking, contemplating, when there's a white man coming to his door, answers it with a shotgun, says, you got 30 seconds to convince me not to shoot. Invites him in, you know, Smutney says, hey, uh, Thurman says, hey, I got I got this uh, Uncle Bully. He died, left me all this money. And it's, I actually thought this is a, a good use of Chris Rock's comic timing in almost exactly the same way that Timothy Oliphant used his a few episodes where he just like stares down someone telling him this improbable story. It's like, okay, all right, well, thanks for paying off your debts. Then, of course, there's an odor to these yeah. bills that he notices. And now it's, it's fucking on. Um, and I, I started when I was thinking, when I was watching the scene, I'm like, do I believe that that Lloyd Cannon could be fooled by this guy? And I, I kind of think he would, right? Like, why would he? Why would he suspect that the mild mannered funeral parlor guy, yeah, pulled a heist to rob him and then pay him with his own bills? You know, if he had, it would be a more effective bluff than like the the Italians hiring a couple of Bonnies to go True. knock off his, Throw him his off shop, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It'd be even a more convincing plot. So, like, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I think it definitely works. Um, I think Chris Rock is great in this scene. Um, it's everything he needs to be. And I, I kept expecting during the next scene where he goes to his family and tells them what happened for that, the action to happen right there, right then and there. And yeah. we're not ac- we're not actually out of that scene yet. You know, we could pick up right where we left off next episode uh, mm. and they could bust in the door and they could, you know, corner him and beat him and get the information out of him about Zalmera and where she's staying and go after her. I expect all that shit to happen uh, in next episode. But yeah. it, it just like that entire scene. I'm thinking, oh, man, this is ominous because Loy has figured out what's up. Yeah. And it's it's, it's so great because you can see the wheel spinning because he is he's like a high alert yeah. and paranoid as hell. And he's just like, you know, you can just kind of like with Timothy the Oliphant, you can see the tumbler spinning behind the eyes when he's like calculating all the angles of uh, the Brill story and the her combination of her sister. And then he's like, you know, well, OK, whatever. And then Thurban comes home, he tries to sweep the Brill off her feet, you know, saying he solved all the family's problems, uh, swears on a stack of Bible. It's sigh a, re- sigh a relief o'clock here in the old Smutney household. But then the Brill quickly finds out where the hell did you get this money? Where is my sister? What did you do? Yeah. Um, her her says, well, what wheels and gears start turning, right? What does she do? Is there any way she can get in front of this train wreck? No, like he like, says, I mean, the- it's already done. Whatever I did, it's already done. Uh, the only thing she can do is show up at Loy's place and just fall on his knee, her knees and be like, look, my sister busted out of jail. She got this crazy notion. I needed help with the situation. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. This was like, you know, like, like I essentially do the same thing with Chris Rock that she did with Timothy Oliphant and just like, you know, come as clean as you can on this business. My husband's an idiot. You know this. I guess. We all know this. Give up like Zalmer's location. I yeah, it's hmm. I don't know. She's gonna have a real loyalty check here. You know, is she and you know, we've seen that she's got problems with her sister in the first place, right? There's a lot of trouble yeah. that her sister brings along and 
Right. She may right. feel like, okay, enough is enough. Um, I'm not going to let it, I'm not going to let this haunt my family for the rest of eternity. Uh, right. Maybe we can nip it in the bud here by just letting Loy have Zalmer. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this, like, what is the, you know, the thing is, is like, um, when the ghost first reared his, like, noseless head, I was annoyed because I'm like, God, this is such a great gangster film. Yeah. Do I need it to, do I need it to turn into, like, some kind of Tales from the Crypt thing? But I don't know, it just depends because, like, I, that's my, my question is like, well, how will the ghost factor in? Like, mm. the, 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 them just being haunted is not interesting into itself. It's like, what role will the ghost play? Or what role will this haunting play or the mental illness play? Like, what does it have to do with the plot? And I guess I'm going to, like, you know, as long as they don't half-ass the gangster stuff by, you know... Like, there, the, there's something kicking in the back of my head um, in the context of the UFO in Season 2. is like, you know, we think that this ghost is a bad thing. What if it's more of like a guardian type spirit? It got me started thinking like last year for the spooktacular, me and Cecily uh, watched one of this, this, this movie is this Mexican ghost story called Tigers Are Not Afraid. And it's about these little kids like, you know, they're, they're orphans of the drug war and they're just kind of living as homeless street urchins and they kind of band together and they're, they're haunted by these supernatural things throughout the whole movie. And uh, I don't want to spoil it, but the ghosts are not what you think they are. The ghosts are not like scary; they're more protective. It's, it's kind of like this: is you see this in like a What Lies Beneath, where you think this ghost is a scary thing, but it ends up saving the main protagonist. There's a, they, they, I wonder if they're going to they're going to swing it that way, you know, that like this is actually some kind of protector figure, and and how do what do you feel about a ghost settling? You know, like, oh, my God, the Smutneys are helpless. They have no defense against the gangsters. And Calmita gets his neck broke by some fucking ghost or gets scared by the ghost and falls backwards down the stairs or some shit like that. Will that feel legit or that feel like you got you got robbed of a satisfying conclusion to a gangland hit? Probably more the latter, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. In that exact scenario, but... We need to brace ourselves for it because that's essentially yeah. what I felt for season two, which was an otherwise remarkable season. And like when a gun gunfight gets gets resolved by UFO ex machina, uh, it, it left well, the sour. The real problem with that, right? It is the ex machina. It's it's the thing that just shows up, and you couldn't have seen it coming, and it's it just blows everything up. But here they've gotten to it so early, that's true. right? Yeah. We're not even halfway through the season, and already they've almost fully integrated this ghost story into the, the gang war. I'm hopeful that they have bigger plans for it. Um, or mm-hmm. if they don't, that they won't let it become an ex machina at the end. Uh, that just kind of resolves whatever situation they needed to. All right. Well, that's exactly what I, that's, that's my thoughts exactly. And that's kind of the end of the episode. Did you have any other points that you want to consider? Should we get right to feedback? Oh, let's go into feedback. Feedback. You can send us feedback at Fargo at baldmove.com. Several people took us up on that proposition. Let's get started. Texas Sandman says, Jack Black Circa Nacho Libre. Mm-hmm. I can't be the only one thinking this. Even his speaking cadence and the voice rings out. He's talking about Gaetano here. I should have preferenced that. This is probably a subject line thing. Gaetano is Jack Black. Sure. Uh, but even his I- speaking ca- I'm sorry. Yeah, go, go ahead. Sorry. Let me try. Let me, let me take this all over. Texas Sandman sends us in a message. Gaetano is Jack Black, specifically Jack Black circa Nacho Libre. I can't be the only one thinking this. Even his speaking cadence and voice rings out as Nacho Libre era Jack Black to me. I think they missed a real opportunity here to have the comedy trifecta with Rock, Schwartzman, and Black. 
Um, that actually would be kind of cool. Not going to lie to have all three of the kind of heads of the crime family bosses be like well-known comics. That would actually be, or come, com- com- I had Schwartzman's not necessarily a well-known comic, but he's definitely more known for comic roles than oh, he yeah. is for, for serious shit. Um, the, the thing I saw on Reddit, uh, which I now can't get out of my mind is not only is he Jack Black in Nacho Libre, but he's also, uh, got a little bit of private pile from full metal jacket in him. Like oh my if, if God. If you see him yeah. like at the very end of his story. Yeah. Cleaning, cleaning guns in the barracks kind of, you know, uh-huh. maniacal. Yeah. Yeah. It's the combination of the that. two. Ooh. Uh, so yeah, you're not the only one thinking on the, the that wavelength, Texas. Yeah. Uh, love the show and the coverage. Can't believe it's been three years since we had some Fargo in our lives. Keep up the good work. Me either. And appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Joe, from our old hometown, Jim, of Indianapolis. You guys have mentioned a few times that you're unsure whether Josto Fada meant for Orietta to kill his father or not. I thought about writing in to clear this up at the last episode, but then Aaron expressed again on the episode forecast that he wasn't sure. I thought I'd go ahead and try to clear this up. Josto absolutely did not mean for Nurse Fada to kill his father. When Josto and Orietta first meet, if you pay close attention to the dialogue, they did a very good job of setting this up. Josta remarks to Orietta that she talks funny and uses big words. Orietta responds by saying, well, I found in my 36 years on God's green earth that it's absolutely critical to be precise in your use of language so as to avoid uh, instances of misreckoning. Josta then fails to be precise in his use of language when he tells her he's in a lot of pain. I don't like to see him like that. Will you take care of him? <laughs> Which There's is Mayweather then- the Italian gangster code, right? Well, that's where I'm going to get to the, yeah. Okay. Nurse Mayweather then misreckons that he's ask, uh, asking of her and incorrectly assumes he's asking her to end his father's suffering. She says, I shall attend to him faithfully until the Lord arrives, which Joshua in turn misinterprets as him looking after him. Mm-hmm. The entire exchange is an example, uh, as, a, as a, just an instance of misreckoning uh, that Orienta warned him of moments before. Um, so, like, you're not wrong, but, like, I, I think the thing that you're missing, or maybe I'm just really obtuse, is that this works the opposite way too. It does. Where she says, "Well, I don't don't make take care to use your words right, so I don't misreckon." He says very clearly, "I don't like to see my father take," and she nods and says, "I'll like right." It he literally that works both ways, and. At what point does Josto ever express dismay or anything but like this is the thing he wanted to happen? Yeah. He sits in his father's chair, has a fucking orgasm. He manifestly is ready to take over the thing. I don't think he has a lot of respect for the way his father is doing business, the whole fart scene. Like, there's no sorrow or sadness or anything. I, 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 am, I, am I being am, am I being obtuse here, Jim? No, you're not. The whole thing is designed... Uh for people to misunderstand it. Um, the misreckoning is happening with us as an audience, I feel, because the show is encouraging that. Like, because Justo is also shown to be somewhat of a buffoon, um, you know, a guy who wants Donatello out of the way, but also uh, might just misspeak and might not understand that he's saying a thing that is very much in the lexicon of of Italian gangsters the hey go kill this guy right like oh it's, yeah. you know it, the, you walk into a shop hey what are the, you got a nice shop here be ashamed if something were to happen to it that's sure. code right like yeah, and, who's gonna say man this senator's a pain in my ass who's is, is if, if only somebody could make that go away some could do the thing did you do that thing with the guy yeah I right did the thing yeah <laughs> exactly and 
the the show is leaning into that heavily uh yeah. while also telling us that you got to be precise and there's misreckonings, but the Italians yeah. are never precise in their language because they're trying to hide things. Like, right? That's the, the whole the shell pretend game. war, and it's it's all it's all supposed to be very confusing. Um, yeah. And so I think any interpretation of of this scene is open. Yeah, and I and I, I to me that's the thing is like I I I didn't I, I it's not that I didn't get all that was happening. It's more of like to me that's put it firmly in the land of ambiguity, especially. You know, if Josta was like really like, oh, my God, I thought my dad was out, you know, like I, it's like a, a BB taking him out. That's crazy. Like, I can't believe this happened. What is the family going to do? But it almost seemed like it was part of a plan. But then also he doesn't remember because he's so high on drugs. He doesn't even <laughs> right. know that she's that he owes her a favor for this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. anyway, but I appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate the chance of this to have the fuller discussion, Joe. Uh, Eric H. Hey, guys, love your work and analysis on some of my favorite shows. Thank you. I know you mentioned that a former Mormon, FOMO, already wrote in to confirm (laughs) the gist of Deffy's character in the Missouri uh, history. But even before then, I, also a FOMO, was jolted by an odd Mormonism connection with Dr. Senator's name. There's a peripheral character in Mormon history named Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. And... Okay. This is not doctor as in a medical doctor or a philosophy doctor. His first name's actually doctor, just like Dr. Senator. That should be want to make that clear. Okay. just want to make that clear. Yeah. It's like fraud. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it really it's like called like senior engineer Jim Jones. Like that's yeah. a slick trick that your mom uh, pulled wanting to get you a leg up. <laughs> Vice on your President career, Jim, Jim Jones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she had a ceiling for you. It's a high ceiling, but it was definitely a ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, this Dr. Philastius Hurlbut is best known for being excommunicated by Joseph Smith for sexual impropriety, something that apparently uh, Joseph Smith himself was acquainted with, uh, and then collecting affidavits of witnesses who claimed the Book of Mormon was then taken from a work by Solomon Spaulding and allegedly selling the copy of Spaulding's original manuscript to the church. This is like a, a lot of juicy FOMO gossip here. The speculation is that Hurlbut was in was onto Smith's chicanery and excommunication was an act of removing a critic and painting him as a heretic so that his later accusations would be discredited by believers, which they mostly were. Would you believe me if I tell you there was an interesting pal- parallel experience in my former religion, uh, the, the infamous purge after the death of uh, one Charles Taze Russell mm-hmm. and a takeover by... Uh, no, it was Charles. Yeah, Charles Taze Russell, and then uh, Judge Just Rutherford took over yes. and liquidated all of his rivals in a similar fashion. Um, he includes a Wikipedia part, uh, article for Doctor Philastius Hurlbut and says, "Not sure if there's any bearing whatsoever on Fargo season four, but it's the only example I've ever heard of of someone being named Doctor in this way." And then to find out there's a prominent Mormon character in a state with a long-standing assassinating Mormon orders makes me wonder if Holly might be sprinkling other Mormon references in there for some other reason. He uh, gives us another free one. Lemuel is also a notable character in the Book of Mormon, one of the wicked brothers of the righteously arrogant Nephi. So, hmm. I I guess we need to be on the lookout for other, uh, you know, uh, Mormon historical facts and, and clues and, and connections there. Lemuel so, is uh, Loy's son, right? Which would make his brother son. Satchel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the righteous brother might be Satchel, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. So 
let's uh let's uh, i appreciate that thank you for sending that in i hadn't obviously I had no idea about that and uh, let's move on to paul it says uh, i'm a baseball fan and i want to point out an interesting detail that i saw or rather heard in season four episode three in the scene where rabbi and satchel are hanging out immediately before rabbi is ordered to come along for the assassination marco uh <laughs> you want you want come on polo, jim didn't you <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you left me hanging with the polo. It's I, I'm not in a pool. I can't get out of the pool. I'm not thinking in those <laughs> dynamics. There's there's a baseball game on the radio in the background of the scene. It's from the Kansas City Monarchs. The Monarchs were a very prominent Negro League baseball team, which continued operation well after Jackie Robinson and Larry Dobby broke the National League and American League's color barriers in 1947. Weren't they the, well, the might- female team in like f- Field of Dreams or some shit? <laughs> Also, <laughs> the the League of Our Own. You're League referring of, yeah, to, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a whole other different barrier. That's a sexual gender uh, barrier. Okay. We're talking racial barriers here. Uh, while it might be a random choice, I think there's some nice symbolism in it. Satchel and Rabbi are outcasts within their crime family, and it makes sense that they'd follow a baseball team that's made out of outcasts of the more mainstream leagues. Uh, to clarify, I'm not diminishing the quality. Yeah, I, yeah. We're, this isn't about this isn't about any kind. This is we're just talking about his, his historical how these things were viewed. Yeah, I'd also suggest that maybe um, Satchel or maybe Loy Cannon uh, would be more highly prize, even if there is a, a, a mixed league getting play like the the OG Negro League. Maybe he would, um, you know, them doing their own thing would be appealing to that family for that reason too. And 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 and, and indeed, Paul continues. Um, Bob Kendrick, a prominent Negro League historian, always says the philosophy of the league was that we'll do it ourselves. And through hard work and determination, a lot of black players and owners found success while blazing their own trail in their own leagues. I think that's a lot in common with the Cannon Gang's mindset and way of doing things as evidenced by them banking for the black community and innovative things like credit cards. Um, I think it's kind of interesting, and I might be getting myself into hot, hot water here because this isn't stuff that I've like vetted publicly. Um I've heard a lot of like in, in black academia, this uh, notion that like, not that segregation was good, but the way that we ended desegregation was net bad for African-Americans for this reason. When things were segregated, you had an entirely parallel economy. You had black banks, you had black schools, you had black department stores, you had black grocery stores, you had black everything. Black Wall Street. Um, you had and 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 within this parallel economy, uh, black families could could uh, live their version of the American dream. They could become wealthy, start a business, um, own land, do all these things. When segregation was ended, it was in such a way that like you know we got rid of like when when they were deciding which schools to close. Are going oh gee whiz are we going to close are we going to close the white school? Are we going to close the black school? Well, obviously we're going to close the black school. Um, okay, which teachers are we going to maintain? Are we going to keep the black teachers or are we going to teach we keep the white teachers? Um, when when uh, black people had access to larger financial institutions, white financial institutions, um, they chose those over to black. So it like it kind of like destroyed this parallel economy. And now um, instead of being able to succeed in that parallel economy, they uh, uh, a lot of times blacks were left to flounder within this integrated system. And by the way, when they kept the white schools and the white teachers and the black kids are going to that, a lot of those white teachers from segregated school system, they're racist as fuck. Mm-hmm. So like this, this is this this like this idea that when we ended segregation and the Jim Crow, like everything was just magically, hey, you're equal by in the eyes of the law, didn't actually work out that way in practice. And I wonder. 
in in kind of like similarities. Again, I'm not saying segregation was good. Okay. Yeah. Um, I just want to make that clear. But like, I wonder if this dovetails into Paul's comments, where like I could see a guy like Loy being excited about these parallel opportunities, and yet also wanting to get into those bigger white markets too. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot so. of sense. I, I also yeah. wonder if uh, you know he could be. He's got a lot of uh, operations. You know, could he be sort of putting pressure on maybe the Monarchs team? Maybe he's got interest in the Monarchs because he's got a guy throwing games or something. You oh, know? shit. He's shaving points. Oh, I mean, man. let's not forget, you know, they're, they're not just them? black. Yeah. They're also the mafia. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're doing criminal <laughs> shit. It's right. not it's not prejudiced or racist to say that these gangsters are doing gangster shit. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. Um no, that's interesting, and they are running. They are running a numbers game and and uh, betting and stuff. You see the big board there where they're tracking yeah. bets and stuff. Um, another parallel economy that's happening. The mm-hmm. alternate economy, as they mentioned. Um, okay, F- finishing up. Dave has uh, his two cents. The Bald Move Fargo podcast was my introduction to Bald Move. I started watching season one of Fargo in uh, 2015 and went looking for some commentary. And came across your Fargo podcast. Well. Congratulations for coming through the cramped and narrow door. <laughs> I was gonna say you and exactly eight other people. Yeah, this is one of our this is one of our famously smaller shows, but I fucking love it, and it tickles uh-huh. me to death that you know we've had such a, a long term uh, fan and supporter out of it. So thanks for validating us picking up this small show, Dave. <laughs> he says I agree that Satchel Lloyd Cannon's son is probably going to change his name to become Mike Milligan. Alternately, Satchel does that sound like a name or is that like a nickname? Sounds like a nickname to me. Like, I, I feel like that we're going to find out by the end of this season that, you know, Mike is his first given name, you know, and the mm-hmm. dates line up beautifully. You take this kid. What is he? Eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm. 1950s. Season two of uh, Fargo takes place in 79. It'd make Mike Milligan somewhere between 37, 30. It's per- it, li- it fucking lines up perfectly. Yeah, lines up perfectly. Uh, but he says, I agree that uh, Lloyd Cannon's son is going to be revealed to be Mike Milligan. I'd rather they hint at it now rather than force it at the end of the season, which they have done in the past at this sort of thing before. And I agree. I do feel like they're setting up all the tracks for this. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if Satchel slash Mike turns on his father, as did Rabbi Milligan uh, before him, and instead pledges his loyalty to Rabbi Milligan. Previous seasons of Fargo always seem to involve um, some sort of war that decimates a criminal gang or two. Wouldn't surprise me if that happens here. We, we talked about this a little bit last week. Like, my thought is the cannons are just going to be the gang that wins, right? Um, yeah. But... It is possible that like both of these gangs take each other out and a new gang is formed, you know, answering the question of what is it mean to be an American like this Irish quasi Jewish person and black person like start up a whole other gang in Kansas City becoming a Kansas. I think that would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like the idea of Satchel betraying his father. Like they'd have to do a lot of fucking work because for all accounts, like, you know, Loy seems like the definition of a tough but fair kind of dad, you know, like he doesn't talk down to his sons. He does expect them to, to play the role, which is a little a little bit of friction. But I, I like it. It, it yeah. seems like it's a great relationship. I you got one who's re- who's rebelling. I have to imagine he was raised in a similar fashion, but one is is very much not wanting that life. I, but rebelling but, but in a way of like, like 
Yeah, you don't get out of that life um, and betray your family and then start up another gang, right? Well, I mean, uh, like that's a that's literally Michael Corleone's story, right? Like, I love my family very much, but like, I don't want to do this criminal shit. I want to be a legit American. Look at me. I'm the war hero. I'm the poster boy. I'm the civilian. Mm-hmm. And yet he ends up being they pull him the back most in. fucking Corleone of any Corleone, right? right? Like, it would be interesting if Satchel's kind of, well, so Lemuel's kind of that way. Like, you know, he's turning his back on his family. Not exactly turning his back on his family. He just has a disagreement with the old man about how things should be. Yeah. And that didn't make Michael Corleone an outcast by his family by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. Do, we're doing a lot of viewing this stuff through the lens of Godfather, but what the hell? It's like... Of course. You view a lot of fantasy through the lens of J.R.R. Tolkien because what the fuck are you going to do? You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> he, yeah. he made the genre. So um, anyway, I want to move on from that to uh, Dave's la- other points. Did you notice the use of the word rumpus in episode two? They didn't say what's the rumpus as in Miller Crossing, but it certainly jumped out to me as uh, I was looking for something to hint at that film, which is still my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Miller's Crossing is great. Miller's Crossing mm-hmm. is a hell of a gangster film in its own right. If you haven't seen it, you really should. Um, I haven't. There's nothing quite like it in the uh, Coen Brothers milieu, in my opinion. Um, and I, I do. I love how they sprinkle those odd Conanisms throughout the the series. I also like the music this season, but the change gives the story a very different feel. The first few seasons have their each in own individual flavor, but they feel like close cousins or even siblings of the Fargo movie. This one feels like a distant relative, at least so far. The fact that the main character this season isn't a police officer probably has a lot to do with that, too. That's a good hmm. point. I didn't realize that, but this is... Yeah, I mean, Wef, Wef is not a main character. He's like a B, He's like a tier two character at best. Oh, yeah. I don't even know that this season has a main character. I think this season has several main characters. The closest I think they come to having a character of the POV has got to be uh, Ethelria. Oh, yeah, yeah, because she gets the, the narration. First narration. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, I, I think if that's that's the most main character, but she's also been a very uh, backseat main main character thus far. Like, for the, sure, the action certainly hasn't revolved around her, except for maybe with Mayfly. Yeah, I, I think you could defend that by the end of the season. We'll see how it goes. But uh, he closes. Looking forward to the rest of your coverage of the season. Thanks, Dave. Uh, we are too. Hope you can contribute again someday. Uh, that's all the email we have. That's all the points we have to consider for the feedback, the feedback, the feed, the, the mailbag, feedback, mailbag there. Got it out in three. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back next week with the next episode of Fargo, which I am looking forward to looking forward to see how ghosty things get this year. Yeah. Feels appropriate. The month of October. Uh, we just spooked up our houses this, this, this weekend and Fargo spooked up their episodes. It's just, it's just time for it, right? Sure. Uh, but we'll be back next week. And until then, uh, get all that feedback into Fargo at baldmove.com. You can also go to our forums at forums.baldmove.com. Uh, we'll be back next week. And until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.